Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by the UCLA Extension Writers Program, the largest open enrollment creative writing and screenwriting program in the nation. At UCLA Extension, you can take courses in novel writing, short fiction, memoir, personal essay, poetry, playwriting, writing for the youth market, publishing, you name it. And you can also take screenwriting courses, both feature film and television. The various classes are taught by top-level instructors who have actually walked the walk, publishing books and producing films and television shows. The program features almost 500 courses annually, both online and on-site, at beginner, intermediate, and advanced levels, with evening, weekend, and daytime options as well. The program also features certificate programs in feature film, television writing, fiction, and creative nonfiction, manuscript and script consultations, writing competitions, free events, nine-month master classes, mentorships, scholarships, and friendly and knowledgeable advisors. For more information, call 310-825-9415. That's 310-825-9415, or visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers, or check them out on Facebook and the Twitter. This is a writer's program. You can learn to write better. Go and do it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is digitally enhanced interrogation. This is what your ears are for. My guest today is Chloe Caldwell. She's the author of a new essay collection called Legs Get Led Astray. It is available now from Future Tense Books, which is a fabulous indie imprint run by Kevin Samsel up in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I had a lot of fun talking with Chloe about a variety of different things, and you'll be able to hear our conversation in its entirety in just a moment. Uh, but before we get started, I want to briefly discuss uh, the time I got spanked with a riding crop in the desert. I was just looking at this old picture uh, moments ago, coincidentally, this old photograph, which was on my Facebook page in my Facebook account. And uh, the photo was taken at the Burning Man Festival in 1999. Uh, I was there for work, actually. Uh, I was on assignment for a film company that I was working for. This was early in my career. And uh, I was supposed to be making a documentary film. I was supposed to be collecting 
documentary film footage, and I was trying to interview uh, this dominatrix who was dressed in Christmas attire. And now it occurs to me that maybe I've spoken about this before. This is the problem with doing this podcast. I can't remember what I've talked about. Uh, anyway, this woman, she had on Santa Claus attire, meaning like a Santa Claus hat and some various other holiday-themed accoutrements uh, to go along with the traditional black leather, the knee-high boots, and so on. Uh, and there is an ethos at uh, the Burning Man Festival, for those of you who have never attended, that it is all about immersion and participation. So for many of the attendees, uh, you know, writers and filmmakers who come to the festival to film it or cover it in some uh, sort of journalistic fashion are looked upon with a certain degree of scorn, uh, with a certain degree of derision. And uh, there's a hierarchy at the festival and and a kind of insularity, uh, which I find there often is in any uh, highly developed subculture. And and there's an intensity to it and a protectiveness, uh, or at least there used to be. And it's something that I do understand to a point meaning I I do understand the concept of wanting people to participate rather than simply observe. Uh, I understand the concept of wanting to uh, protect the the best uh, elements of the thing from uh, being polluted by pollutants. But, you know, like anything, uh, I do think it can be taken too far. And so in this instance, uh, I remember I approached this Santa Claus dominatrix woman and asked her if I could interview her on camera for this uh, project that I was supposed to be undertaking. And she said, yes, she would, but on one condition. And that condition was that she uh, wanted to be uh, allowed, wanted to be permitted to spank me. And so uh, being the good sport that I was, I said, sure, that's fine. That sounds fair. I can take a spanking. Uh, You know, why not? And uh, so now this woman is ordering me around and there's a small crowd gathering and she is uh, telling me what to do with some authority, and I am listening to her with uh, surprising obedience. And she is telling me to step over here, and she is telling me to turn around, and she is telling me to bend over and put my hands on my knees or whatever it is. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm going to get uh, you know a light spanking, something playful, something uh, you know semi delicate and humorous, perhaps you might say. Uh, but this woman uh, had other ideas, and uh, she had a riding crop in her possession, which is the, you know, the, the device that jockeys use to whip racehorses. Uh, at least I think that's what it is. And so the next thing I know, this woman is lashing me with this riding crop, uh, and the pain is extraordinary. Uh, I can't, uh, I can't overstate that. Uh, and I, and I, and I want to say I committed uh, to something like 10, uh, cracks with this riding crop. And by the third crack, I was an enormous, uh, enormous discomfort. And, and by 10, uh, I was almost in tears and I knew, uh, that there was you know going to be a serious mark left and, uh, possibly some scarring. So why do I tell you this? Well, uh, I guess it's quasi related to Chloe, to Chloe Caldwell with apologies to Chloe, uh, and her book, uh, legs get led astray. Uh, and in particular, it's related to the kind of writing that Chloe does, uh, which is to say the art of the personal essay and how as a writer, if you tend to work from the inside out in the first person, uh, be it memoir or essay, uh, or thinly veiled autobiographical fiction, there can be a tendency to sort of mediate your own experience through the lens of your literary ambition and to consciously or subconsciously seek out experiences, uh, that might one day be good fodder for a book. 
And, you know, Chloe and I, uh, we talk about this, which you'll hear in just a second. And I think it's an interesting topic. And I think it's something that's relatively normal, at least to some degree, and at least for some writers. And when I look back on certain big experiences in my life, and really any big experience, like, like a travel experience or, or something uh, of great psychological intensity, uh, you know, because I'm a writer and because I entertain at least modest literary ambitions, I, I think I'm always going into these experiences thinking to myself, uh, well, well, this could be good. This, this could be good fodder. This is big. This is something that I can potentially turn into a story or a book of some kind or whatever. And furthermore, uh, I find myself drawn to authors who, in addition, you know, to writing big books, uh, lived these great big lives. Like however messy, however drug and alcohol fueled, however narcissistic and bloated and temperamental and manic depressive, uh, however complex messianically and emotionally or otherwise, uh, I find it interesting. But then uh, I also get interested in the fact that I'm interested in it, that I'm interested in writers who lived and worked like that, uh, who lived big and who almost certainly, you know, went out of their way or, or still do go out of their way in search of great big giant experiences in the hope of one day turning them into great big giant important books in all capital letters. And then I get interested in what that really means. You know, that's, that's sort of impulse taken to its limits uh, by guys like Jack London or Ernest Hemingway or William Volman or Sebastian Younger. And whether or not uh, at the end of the day it's a net positive thing, like a, whether or not uh, I don't know, on a human behavioral level, it's a sign of vivaciousness and passion and a full-hearted embrace of existence, uh, or whether uh, it's actually not quite so positive, like functioning instead as a, a sign of narcissism and delusions of grandeur and a tendency to see one's life as being larger and more grandiose and uh, more magically, cosmically significant than it actually is. Or maybe it's a combination of both. As is, as is usually the case, I think. And of course, I, I don't know definitively. I, I am incapable, uh, it seems, of finding anything resembling absolute clarity on the yes or no black or white spectrum and can only be resolute in saying that I don't really know, but that both sides seem to hold some merit. And I could be missing a side. It's not like they're just two. And I can tell you also that when I was standing there, bent over uh, on that bright, August afternoon under the hot sun in the Black Rock Desert of Nevada in 1999 at the Burning Man Festival and that Santa Claus dominatrix was lashing me with her riding crop repeatedly and I was gritting my teeth in pain, in real, honest-to-God, burning, intolerable pain. There was a part of my brain that remained at a certain remove from basic fight-or-flight instinct, a part of my brain that was watching the experience grading the experience, mediating the experience, performing uh, as a kind of mental movie camera. Uh, it was a part of my brain that was thinking to itself, this is worth it. This is beautiful. This will be good for my writing someday. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career. 
a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So I am in Hudson, New York, um, which we call Upstate. I am in my bedroom. Um, I actually work on Mondays. Um, and downstairs is my father's um, music store where I work. So I got the hour off to do this podcast. But downstairs is like this big music store and it's like guitars, ethnic instruments, um, books, you know, tablature books. Uh, we do lessons, repairs. So. Wow. No. So, you, so that's your, dad, where I am. your dad runs a music store and then you live above it? Yeah, that's right. Um, it wasn't always like that. He had it in a different town for about 10 years in Chatham, which is where I went to high school. And then he moved it to Hudson about four years ago. Um, I wasn't living here. I think I was in the city at the time. And um, still, he wasn't living above it. He was on a different street. But then this space above it um, opened up, and it's kind of it's like this big loft space. So it's uh, spacious, but not a lot of privacy, um, big windows. So it's really cool. Yeah, so I don't have to commute to work. I just run downstairs. Um, and then up here, we do some shows. Um, we have, like, bands play and stuff like that. So then I had the idea to do a reading series here. So I do have um, the Hudson River Lost reading series, which I host here at my house where my dad and I live. <laughs> okay, okay. so you live with your so, father in a loft. Yes, oh, yes. Oh, it's, it's so interesting. You got it. And your dad sounds cool. He's, I mean, like he's running a music shop. Like, you know. Yeah, yeah. My dad's really cool, um, very supportive of um, all things creative. So. And it's what, been really what instrument does he play? I mean, he, he must be musically inclined, I would imagine. My dad primarily, yeah, he play, primarily plays guitar. Um, and he used to play more like he played mandolin um, quite a bit. But um, guitar, classical guitar, finger picking for the most part. And he, so he gives lessons to, you know, a lot of teenagers in the community, older people, all kinds of different people. So and did you it's get really it? nice. It's a really. Did you get any of this? Are, are you musical at all? Um, that's the funny thing. It's like I work downstairs all day and it's really like a blow to the ego after a while when everyone's, you know, so what do you play? And I say, oh, I'm a writer. <laughs> and they don't, uh, they don't care. But I, I actually studied um, singing for about 10 years. I was really into singing um, musicals, Italian arias, opera. So I sang like crazy. Um so you have I mean, so being a kid and naturally good like pitch or whatever like you can you have the gift. Yeah, yeah, I, I was I was like a, I was a gifted singer. Yeah, I didn't really I didn't stick with it. Um, Do you want to sing something? When I moved for to New York here? City. <laughs> no, 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 thank you. Um, <laughs> when I moved to New York City, I kind of I I stopped taking lessons. I couldn't really afford them anymore, so I kind of I wasn't. Um, like competitive enough for it. A lot of my vocal teachers, you know, we would have these recitals or we would do, there was NISMA, which is like this 
you know, competition singing thing. And I, I never, that aspect of it did not appeal to me. It was just more like of a fun thing. So I think it's, I kind of, I stopped, but you know, maybe I'll get back into it one day. I know it's, it's gotta be the nicest thing in the world to be able to sing well and like to make people happy, like just by like opening your mouth and making like pleasant yeah, sounds. Yeah, that's true. That's a, that's a gift. That's true. Yeah. Same thing with the, I mean. It, yeah. All of a sudden I'm embarrassed by it. Like I, I've gotten like, I don't know. I think maybe since I stopped doing it and now it's like I totally clam up and won't. So I, I, it kind of breaks my heart that I stopped. So we'll see how I can incorporate it back in. But it would be nice to play an instrument because then you can accompany yourself. You yeah. don't have to depend on other people. Yeah. So have you, so, ever, have you ever been in a band? I was a trier. I, yeah. <laughs> in high school, <laughs> I definitely uh, kind of played around in a couple bands. Um, let's see. We did one um, in eighth grade. I think we performed um, I Want You to Want Me. I sang that by Cheap Trick. <laughs> you know that song? Oh, yeah. I love that song. So we did that. And then I was really into No Doubt. We did um, Just a Girl Okay, so by stop, No Doubt. Stop, and, stop right there. Because like, I'm a huge No Doubt fan. And uh, <laughs> me people, too. Ma- people make fun of me for this. But like, I think as far as like pop music goes, as far as pop music is concerned, they're like, mm-hmm. the, per- they're like the perfect pop band. And... and Gwen Stefani is like the ultimate pop star, female pop star. Like, oh, she's fantastic. Yeah, she's fantastic. She didn't have like a lot of ego. You know what I mean? Like, she was kind of just herself. I don't know. I yeah, I I loved her. I was totally enamored with her. I saw him in concert. So, I mean, my wife took me because my wife. Did you? Kid. So did I. And she's doing push-ups. Uh, she's just. I think she's awesome. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah, she's so athletic. Um. Yeah, they were good, right? I saw them, I think, in, in Ithaca. My dad actually brought my, my son and I. We drove out to a No Doubt concert, and he likes to say some story that we were, like, he couldn't find us at the end of the night because all the girls were, like, you know, we were, like, 15, 16. He says that everyone was just, like, dressed like skanks, like we all. He said we, we wore these jackets, and we got there and took them off, and we had on these, like, tight shirts. I don't remember any of this, but that's his memory. But, yeah, it was a great show. I think I, like, lost a shoe and an earring and... It was pretty wild. So do you sound like, give, give me, like, since you won't sing for me, do you, like, can you give me a comparison? Mm-hmm. Like, who do you sound like? I mean, you sing Gwen <laughs> Stefani easily, or you, is this, like, some sort of, uh, like, mimicry? Well, I think I imitated, I think I imitated a lot of people, actually. Like, when I was into these, like, Broadway shows, I would listen to that, and I, I could kind of, like, I, I was like a chameleon, you know? I never found my true, I had my true voice, but I was like, I, if I like the way someone else was singing, I would sing like them. So that's probably where I went wrong. Yeah, see, that's, um, that's what I try to do. I, it's, I was it's faking so, it. It's so bad when I try to do it. You know, at least at least you can at least you can <laughs> imitate well. At least you can imitate like, you know. Yeah, I could. I could. <laughs> right. So, but what is your like? Oh, what yeah. is your true? What is your true unencumbered voice sound like? I mean, are you are you do you sound more like uh, like Stevie Nicks, or do you sound more like? Uh, I don't know. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, do you have somebody that you think you sound like? Yeah. Um, hmm. Let's see. I can't really think of like one woman who I think I sound like. No, it's definitely, it's not like a Stevie Nicks raspy thing. It's like a pretty pure, like, uh, um, voice. Like I was, when I was younger, I was always like a soprano. I could do all these high parts. And then when I got a little bit older and in high school and stuff, I remember they changed me in choir to being an alto which was cool because like nobody wanted to be with like, nobody who was altos, you know, there was just like three or four of us and it was like this like special thing, but also you kind of felt like a loser. I don't know. But it, so when I started singing alto, um, it was just fun. You got good, interesting parts doing that. 
Um, who do I, who else do I, I don't know. I really liked like, like no doubt and Shakira. I mean, I was thinking like Shakira and I could do the musicals pretty well. I think I just, I, I, I'm not sure who I sound like. I'll have to get back to you on that. I like Shakira too. I have to think about that. Do you? We have yeah. the same taste. Yeah, we do. I don't know. I, I, Shakira's good. I think I, she I, had some good songs. I think I came around like once I, you know, cause my wife and I have like really diametrically opposite taste in music, or at least I thought we did. And so, uh, mm-hmm. cause like my wife has the, my wife has the, like the kind of the musical taste of a gay man. That's I, I sort of the deal. I mean, she loves all the, <laughs> like we've, I've been to George Michael concert with her and like got totally into George Michael. <laughs> like we thought he was like spectacular. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I thought he was like spectacular live and careless um, whisper is so good. Yeah. And you want to know something strange. Yeah. I mean, this is like really going to make me seem possibly very weird to listeners, but, um, oh, great. I have such like a spotty memory, but I have this like very distinct mm-hmm. memory of being, um, like in third or fourth grade with like one of those big Walkmen, like from back in the day. Cause I'm, you know, I'm 36. Mm-hmm. So I don't even think mm-hmm. it had, a, I don't even think it had a cassette player. I think it was just a radio. <laughs> and I was out, right. on, I was out on the playground during recess, during elementary school. And for some reason I thought it would be cool to have these headphones on and to just be sort of like walking around by myself, listening to the radio. And right. I have a very distinct memory of watching all the other kids play kickball and hearing that song, uh, what was it? What was the one where he, he, George Michael was singing to his wife about everything you want? Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, I'm blank. I don't know if I know that one. No, you know it. It's like one of his. It's one of his hits. You know, like uh, and now uh-huh. you, and now you tell me that you're having a baby. I tell you that I'm happy if you want me to. Oh, I forget, okay. You know that. You know what I'm talking about. I forget the name of the song. I know. I think I know. But it's this very complicated adult situation. Um, you know, about uh, having children and like taking you for money. Right. Like, I was in fourth grade and I was like, yeah, you know, like, <laughs> I, re- I was like relating to it somehow. It's a very strange childhood. Isn't memory. that weird? Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. And all the kids are playing kickball and you're like listening to this, um, it was brooding. this complex thing. Over that's the... funny. I remember that reminds me, like I was in the back of the car. Um, I was, all, I, re- I loved Ace of Base and like I had the tape and I, yeah. And I was listening to like a tape player with headphones and it was my mom and dad and my brother and, I was singing like "Voulez-vous coucher avec moi," like this like Ace of Base song, like "Will you sleep with me?" I didn't know what I was saying though, you know. And I'm like singing along. <laughs> I remember like my hearing my dad sing, and I'm like, "What is she listening to back there?" You know, like it was just this like evocative thing. Yeah. yeah. So it was just weird when it happens. We don't understand fully what we're listening to. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well. um, so here's a question, and then I'll get off this singing thing. But this fascinates me. Like, okay. can it be can it okay. be taught? Like, I know you like you can take voice lessons, but can somebody like me mm-hmm. who cannot sing that well? Um, like yes, you can get better. Like, how much better? I think that you can probably get a hundred times better if you uh, stick with it, because probably a big part of it maybe is that maybe do you have a good ear? Because I think that can be taught as well. Um having an ear is a big, is a big part of it. Um, I do like they, because breathing techniques, they can teach, um, you know, sight singing and just to be like being musical about the whole thing. And, um, yeah, I think that there are, I think there are techniques. I don't think, you know, it will turn you into like a totally like gifted singer, but I think that you, it would, you would become more comfortable with singing. You would, and like find, like, you know, they're, they're some of these voice teachers, they're experts in the field. So they would probably tell you some things like, like what happened with me, like, Oh, you're not a soprano, you're an alto. 
you know, like they might give you some maybe I'm a soprano, some really maybe helpful my, advice. Maybe, maybe, maybe you my, are a soprano. Maybe, maybe that's my problem. Is I'm trying to like I'm using this radio voice, <laughs> trying to cover. Maybe it you up. have a good falsetto. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That would be funny. Well, yeah, I sing. To I my, don't know. Voice lessons are great. Yeah. Well, I sing to my daughter at night because uh, she likes it. Mm-hmm. You know, it helps her go to sleep, and I feel sort of bad. But yeah. There's also a part of me that like harbors this kind of like wish that like maybe she'll she'll get musical talent somehow like through some minor minor right. strain in my like genetic you know line <laughs> and uh but i'm singing these lullabies to her and it's you know i just feel i don't know if it's helping i don't know i could be hurting you know like embedding no it's embedding. not hurting. Does, does she like to sing all little kids like to sing. She will. Right? She likes to dance. She's a little young. I mean, she'll, she'll kind of mm-hmm. sing, but mm-hmm. she's she's 19 months old. Yeah. So she's just sort of babbling at this point. Okay. But, but she does like mm-hmm. to, she likes to dance. Like, I think all little girls like to dance, you know. Aww. Yeah. Yeah. And then dancing gets very, I don't know, singing and dancing both make me very insecure now. And as a kid, I was like such a, that was all I like to do. Well, let's talk it's about that we lose that. Well, and you write about this a little mm-hmm. bit in your book. This is a good, uh, good mm-hmm. opportunity for an elegant segue. Like you, uh, like the, the whole trance mm-hmm. dance mm-hmm. essay and like this, uh, right. this camp experience. And it remind it kind of takes you back to, um, you know, that moment in adolescence or, or the many moments in adolescence where the act of dancing and anything musical sort of leaves the realm of like the, the pure and the innocent and takes on all sorts of other different meanings. And like, uh, right. you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I remember those days, like I jun- junior high school dances. Uh, we had something called the six, right. we had something called the sixer mixer. And when I was in sixth grade, <laughs> and then there was uh-huh. uh, and then in seventh and eighth grade there was the uh the teen scene i'm not even kidding you um, oh man yeah and they were brutal they were brutal you know <laughs> the whole thing was such a um stress it was such a stress on me trying to figure it out but oh, i know it's so stressful it's it's really sad if you could go back in time you would just relax and have fun like teen scene sounds fun you know but at the time it's just Oh God! It's like we act like we're getting married or something. No, like I, I was the same. I couldn't just relax and have a good time with those things. Well, it's okay. really a shame. Well, no, it, it is, and like this is the thing too. There are cultures that are obviously a lot more comfortable musically and a lot more unencumbered. Um, but it's like there's also, and I've had this conversation with people before in defense of myself, and I don't know if I'm defending myself or trying to justify bad behavior. Um, you know, mm-hmm. but I've I've often said like, look, you know. Just because I don't like to dance. Like, if I go to a concert and everybody's <laughs> dancing, like, I will be, like, kind of head bobbing maybe. You know what I'm saying? But I'm not going to yeah. just, like, I'm not going to dance. I'm not doing it. Um, right. Unless I'm, right. unless I'm very drunk. Unless I'm very drunk. Right, In right. which case I will. But, but I was always, like, you know, mm-hmm. you have these people who kind of get in your face and they're like, you know, if you're not dancing, then... Come some, on, man. Yeah. yeah. Somehow you're, like, fun impaired. And, like, I can have fun. I just don't want to <laughs> dance to, like, Mustang Sally on, like, a parquet floor with right. you know so that's right. a, that's a question it's like am i am i making a, a valid argument and am i entitled to that that feeling or am i simply trying to ma- you know cover up the fact or, or justify the fact that i'm like tragically uh you know too tightly wound or whatever you know what i'm saying right i know or is it like a defense thing like i feel like not dancing uh, can we say swear words on yes. on this podcast of course, of course yeah. oh, okay because i was gonna say um I was going to say, it's almost like you're saying like a big fuck you to everyone who's having a great time by like, it's like you're, you are putting up a wall by that. Cause I do it too. Like you go in, everyone's dancing, but what if you're not in the mood? I mean, that's a real thing, not being in the mood. 
to dance. Yeah, I just feel that you know? it's like that pressure to be. It's like it's like be happy and say it's just. Uh, not that I don't want to be happy, <laughs> yeah. but it's like I don't want to be happy on cue, and I don't want to be happy at some like right. you know, some kind of like manic level. Like I just want to enjoy myself. You know? uh, yeah, or take some ecstasy or something, and yeah. then dance. Yeah, 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 it's hard. I find it hard to like dance sober. It makes me mad though. It's like it makes me mad at myself. But I think it's something I can change. Okay, but you know, I can be. I- well, more easygoing. Well, but no, but here's the thing. Like you're telling me that your dad runs a music store. Um, I, I feel like I feel like you grew up in sort of like a uh, bohemian. And this is my imagination of it. I could be totally wrong, but I, I have this vision of you growing up in this like bohemian household with like these parents who were like permissive and like pretty cool by comparison. Um, and like, you know, I was raised by like very traditional Southern people in this Christian household. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it would be like, it would make sense for me to be encumbered because there'd be some sexual shame component to my not wanting to dance. In right. Public, you know, but like, <laughs> right, right, you, right. you have every, like you were raised barefoot in the wilderness or something. Like, what are you doing? Not right. <laughs> you made me sound like an animal. No, it's just something I've been thinking about recently. Like I am pretty, pretty like I go with the flow and like fun loving, but at the same time I notice I'm. I'm a little more, yeah, restricted than I would like to be. And yeah, I don't know. That's a good, that's a good point that you raise. I don't, I don't know why, but I think sometimes when things are too available, we don't do them. I mean, that's why I don't play guitar. I'm surrounded by 50 guitars all day. (laughs) Do I know how to do one thing? It's humiliating. Like, I don't know how to play one chord. That's true. You know, but if I had taken a guitar lesson with my dad every day or every week or once a month for my whole life, I could be like really good at guitar. Oh God. It's one of those things that like I look at my life, like (laughs) if I could learn, if I could be proficient at playing an instrument and if I could uh, Mm -hmm. uh, be fluent at speaking another language, I would be very happy. And in fact, I I sort of have that in my head as like the the only real litmus test for me as a parent. Like my daughter can be like a, a Neanderthal in every other respect. But if she's bilingual right. and can like play an instrument, I will have done my job. That's how I just, you know, that's how I <laughs> make sense of it to myself. Yeah. No, those are, good, those are good things to have kids do. But you know, sometimes I also think that there's a time and place. I like the fact that my dad and I, like our relationship would be really bad if he like made me play an instrument. Whereas my parents were like, okay, try whatever. And when I wanted to quit, I, I, I quit. Like I tried guitar. I tried piano. I tried drums. I tried bass, but yeah. I didn't. I didn't go for it. I yeah, was a, I was a drummer. I played the snare drum when I was. In Were the, you? Yeah, briefly. I had a brief snare drum career, and then I, uh, in my hippie phase, uh, like my, you know, in college, I took bongo lessons. I shit you not, for credit. For credit. <laughs> my hippie phase. Yeah. I have bongos here. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. I was just like they offered it, and, I, and it was part of my degree. I could take this class for like three credits. I was like, okay, and it was fun. You know. I went oh, to, that sounds. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, yeah. I just went to. Some you know your way around and, some bongos. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could kind of, kind of play, but I mean, it was just mm-hmm. it, it, looking mm-hmm. back on it, it seems absurd. It was like this old kind of like <laughs> burnout guy, like in his house, and I would go into his basement. <laughs> He'd just be like wearing socks and like his hair would be sticking up. And, you know, it was just very bizarre. But uh, I got an A, you know. Did uh, you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's great. So, uh, oh, so great. writing, though. I mean, writing became your thing, like, mm-hmm. you know, clearly. It like, did. When did that uh, emerge as, as like your particular uh, interest? Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to say that emerged when I was about 20 years old. 
Um, I just turned 26. So it is the one thing I've been doing my whole life. It's something I've always gone to. And I've always, I, I didn't do so well in school academically. I did quite poorly. Um, I'm like, you know, I was pretty challenged at math and science, but I could always like write personal essays, like looking back, like even if I hadn't read the book or, you know, um, even in history, like if it were a, an essay, I could do it. I'm not saying if I hadn't read the book, the essay would come out well, but like I had a formula and like I could bullshit it a little bit. And like, I, um, I really, I always did well in English and I even, even my teachers, they would say, you know, this is good writing, like your essay is good, but you know, I never was like, I'm going to be a writer ever or anything. But when I moved to the the city, I, um, I was kind of looking for a creative outlet. Like I remember I was trying to like do these collages. I was like collaging like matchbooks, match boxes. And I was, um, drawing and I was like, just like looking for something to do. I felt very creative. Like I needed something and I was journaling, journaling, journaling. And so then I started taking, uh, writing workshops at the Gotham writers workshop. Um, and once I started doing that, I was hooked I was totally hooked. So those in those workshops, that was where I first started um, writing longer pieces. I had never really written anything um, like a long creative essay. And the deal in that workshop was to we had to write in we had to write 15 pages, um, bring it in for the whole class. You know, there's like 12 people in the class. Give it to everyone, and they would all bring it home and come back and critique it. And that's when I kind of realized, like, I, I just loved doing it. And the feedback I got was was great. And the first thing I ever wrote was that story. It's called um, The Legendary Luke in um, Legs Get Led Astray. And that was a story about the Strand. I never had a title for it. And uh, that was the first time I wrote an essay. I was about 20. And then I just, I, I kept going. And did you ever, I mean, did, was there a, uh, was there, a, I mean, clearly there was like a natural affinity for, the level of candor that like the personal essay requires, like, was there any, were there any like fear hurdles that you had to get over because you write pretty intimately? I mean, you know what I'm saying? You don't really hold back much about your uh, Mm -hmm. personal experiences, which is what the form requires. But I mean, did you find that like, that was like a kind of a duck to water experience for you or did you have to work through some of the uh, anxieties that often accompany that? Right. I definitely changed since then because, um, well, first off, the first course I took there was just a creative writing course. It wasn't, then I started taking memoir courses there, but the creative writing course, we did some nonfiction and some fiction. And like, I just couldn't do fiction for the life of me. Like, oh my God, it's just so hard for me. So then I was like, okay, I can't make stuff up for some reason. So I went to the memoir classes. And yes, in that strand story, I do remember saying things. For example, I wouldn't say the word um, heroin. I would say we did drugs. And I wouldn't say, I was like, I didn't even know. I was, I was like, I was trying to protect the other people in the class and like not make them feel awkward. I remember like I didn't want to uh, say sex or something. I don't know what I would say instead of sex, but I, 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 we, you know, hooked up. I don't know what I did, but I remember the teacher like encircling and being, yeah, exactly. And being like, being like, what drug, you know, like what, what is this? And, um, so there was that, but that was kind of more just me being like, I don't know, like naive and not, yeah, I guess I was a little worried about putting the actual words down. Um, let's see. And then, so there was some, I glossed over some things a lot more than I do now. Um, what about, but what a, I never had. Well, what about parental, ahead. what about like parental approval? Like, did you have like, cause I think a lot of people when they write, they're thinking of like family usually, you know, like it's like, what will my family yeah. think when they read this? Like, do you have, did you have any of those fears? 
Not really. Um, I didn't think, I, I, I don't, I don't, maybe now, now that this book's out, like a lot of things have changed. So maybe now I'll think more of my family when I write, but I, I wasn't thinking about my family when I was first starting <laughs> to write. I, I wasn't worried. I wasn't worrying about that because if I started worrying about that, then that would be the end of me. That's the way I look at it, you know? Right. So I was just writing, but however, I am like frequently close with my parents. Like there, it is weird that I can't keep any secrets. I do have to say, because the second essay I wrote, it didn't make it into the book, um, but it was about this car accident and like being addicted to like painkillers. And I remember giving it to my mom to read like, here, mom, why don't you read the, you know, and she like read it out on the deck and, then we talked about it. Like, I don't know why I do that, but it's just something that I do. And I remember my dad reading the strand essay and he really liked it and stuff. So, um, I don't know. Well, I mean, I think it speaks to like, you know, like your parents obviously, uh, have cultivated a good relationship. You have to feel safe in order to do that. Your cl- your parents make you feel safe, True. which is a good thing. True. You know? That's what it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I'm, yeah. I'm I'm sort of the same way. Like I can't uh, I can't tolerate uh, non disclosure. I mean, I know there's such a thing as tact, but like right. I think like right. you know, as difficult as it may be for parents to read certain things that their kids might write, or as difficult as it may be for people to hear things uh, or read things, you know, that are really bracingly honest. Like ultimately, people feel relieved when someone is is really telling them the truth. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. That's what I think it is with my parents. Right. It's better to know. Here's the thing. It's like I see them all the time. I live at home right now. Like it's not like I'm, you know, living across the country in California and just put out this book of like secrets, like (laughs) that they didn't know anything about, or like this memoir about some kind of crazy life, like some secret life. It wasn't really like that. It was more like they see that I'm okay and that I'm around, and they see me get up for work every day and. They've seen me, my dad has seen me sit in this room for the past year, like writing for like six hours a day. So he knows I don't have any, I'm not like, I don't have any really destructive problems right now. You know, like he sees how healthy I am, I guess is what I'm saying. So he's okay with me talking about my previous years. Well, no, Um, you know. Yeah, and I think there is a sense of relief. A relief on their part. Yeah, on their part. Yeah. Yeah, like the fact that my mom always says, like, the fact that I'm, you know, writing about some of the stuff I've done, you know, it means that I, like, to write about it must mean I, you know, it's how I I worked through it if I'm at the place where I can put it down on paper in a creative way, you know. That's, that makes some sense. So, I, it reminds me, it reminds me of like, uh, you know, when I was 24, I lived at home. Uh, for a while and it was a really productive mm-hmm. time for me as a writer it's actually kind of nice you know like, mm-hmm. i sort of mm-hmm. romanticize it looking back you can get a lot done and there's like a structure yeah i don't know there's something about it but it was like yep. a- that's exactly what just happened with me now i'm kind of like okay i've been here yeah. for uh, quite a while but i came here when i was 24 and that's when i started you know writing the whole writing the book, finishing up the book, work, just working really hard on my writing well it's that and then also like you say having your folks actually get to see what it takes to do a book and what it takes to be dedicated right. to it. Because otherwise, you know, there's such a, I, th- I feel like people have sometimes a hard time wrapping their minds around the, the fact that writers actually work because everything that we're doing is self-directed. Right. And I think, you know, right. in people's imaginations, it can seem like this like light airy thing that happens in a coffee shop when you feel like it. And like, you know, right. in, my, in my experience right. anyway, it's, it's just, a, it's, a, it's grueling work. It's really, hard mm-hmm. work it's like it's as hard as anything i've ever tried to do and um yeah. you know to have 
that you know your folks see that uh, you know probably does good things for both of you. <laughs> yeah, I I totally agree. I think I'm you know closer with them now than I was before the book came out or before this whole writing aspect of my life. So it's it's interesting. Are you close with your parents? Yeah, yeah, super close. You know, like yeah. I have it. Like yeah. I'm one of those lucky uh, people. You know, my I have like a kind of a ridiculously. Uh, good family situation and my parents are just great yeah. so you know okay. i try to I try to yeah. appreciate it as much as it as it deserves to be appreciated you know right yeah um yeah. so let's talk about i mean i want to like you said some interesting things about your your youth like when you were coming out of school you said you didn't do very well in school like does this mean you were like failing classes and then you know, yeah yeah so you were just like what were you like as a teenager were you like really angsty and like fucking around or were you just disinterested or uh were there drugs and stuff that were causing some of this or what was the situation Yeah I was pretty disinterested um well I was very social um I never had a problem making friends so I middle school like I I did okay um I was doing okay but not so great like you know getting like B's and C's, I guess. And high school, um, I just, yeah, I totally turned into a pothead and I, um, I just did not do my homework, you know, and I didn't pay attention. It was like, I was just looking at the clock all day, like waiting to get out of there. Um, were you stoned in school? And my, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, my parents separated. I just wrote an essay about this uh, on the rumpus. My parents separated when I was like 15 and I was already like smoking a little bit of pot, but then I just, and then uh, my dad moved and I, he was like walking distance from high school. So after school, like me and my friends would go there, we would sit on the porch and like, yeah, we were just, we were stoners. Um, yeah. Is that okay that I'm saying this? I yeah, feel of like. Of course. No, I was a stoner. It's all right. You go through, you go through phases <laughs> okay. in life, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. It was the worst when I was a teenager. Yeah. And I, I loved it at the time, you know, and I was I at home. I would write in my journal and smoke weed. And why do, that why? was what I like to do. OK, so because I went through this, I was like a delayed I like as with most things. I'm like a late bloomer. Mm-hmm. Like I couldn't even be a stoner mm-hmm. on time. I was a stoner in college. You know, so I had like a year right. where that happened for me. And like I, I and, yeah. you, and you said something that struck me. You said I loved it. And I did too. I did too until I didn't, you know, but there's this time in your life when you're growing up where it's the greatest thing in the world. And like, you know, it used to be like, uh, you know, we, we let's smoke pot and go to the grocery store or let's smoke pot and go to the museum. It was like, it added this sort of like, everything was like an event and was funny and right. And it's like, the, the question is, do you know why you loved it so much? You know that you loved it, but like, do you, have you ever really like gotten down into why? Um, I think that either I think the f- first reason is because like you have never felt that kind of high before in any way. Like I hadn't had like think about it like this. Like I smoked weed before I well no that's not true. I was gonna say before I had an orgasm, you know, kind of thing. Like it's like this new high, and once you find out that you can feel that way, you just love it. And um, so there's that. But I think also for me, I think it was an escape thing. I think it just put everything at arm's length and it was okay if you're, you know, smoking so much weed. It's a, you don't care that you're failing school. You don't care about stuff like that. Um, so I, I think it was an, an escape mechanism. And I also just think it truly just felt good. Yeah, until until it didn't. Now anyone offers me weed, I'm like, oh, no, 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 no way. 
No way. Which is funny, you know, how that works. Yeah. It pisses me off, kind of. I wish. Like, I can't do it either. (laughs) I'm past it. Yeah. I I sort of, like, I sort of wish that I could every once in a while. Just be, like, and, and like, enjoy it, you know, but go for a hike or something. But, like, I just can't do it. Like, mentally, like, I just become, like, a raving idiot. But, uh, you know, I think back to, like, I think back to my youth and I think back to... um, uh, do you remember the word mellow? I don't know if anybody used it. I went to Boulder, so that word got thrown. Yeah. I, I fucking do. Okay. I hate that word. Um, because Well, what context did you use it in? Well, no. It was always like, we just got to be mellow. Or people would be like, mellow out. Oh, would, God. People would often tell me to oh. mellow out because I'd be like, like I'd be talking. About, <laughs> I'm the guy who'd like smoke the joint and be like, guys, guys, like, you know, like, what do you guys think about, you know, I would be bringing up serious shit and everyone else would be like, dude, just like watch the movie, you know? Oh, that's funny. Yeah. And so uh, I think think maybe I was reading your book like before I uh, got on Mm -hmm. this call and I was like, I was thinking to myself, like it brought up some of these, you know, memories and it's like, (laughs) you know, it was super fun and everybody was trying to be mellow or whatever it was. And everybody was, um, (laughs) you know, having these kind of like mental adventures and it is, it's like bottomless to me trying to figure it out. Like there's a part of me that looks at it and I think to myself, God, we were so scared of life. Do you know what I'm saying? Like to, yes. have, to have to, yeah. med- to have to medicate against it with that level of intensity. Like not that, not that it was like that hardcore, but I mean, you know, like smoking pot pretty much daily, um, you know, at least for mm-hmm. a, a little while in life. Like what's that about? Like why, why is, I mean, is it, is it that frightening and intolerable that you, I mean, and maybe it, maybe it was, Uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe it was. Yeah. Like maybe high school was, yeah, I know that that's a, that's a good point. Wow. That that was, that was very profound. Yeah. And that's interesting. Is that how you felt? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I think it was, I, I, I think drugs do a lot of the time come from, yeah, boredom. And fear, like, oh, God, I can't go to this party. It's going to be boring. I mean, at least for me, that's where a lot of my, like, problems with drugs came up. Um, the party will be boring, you know, but not if I'm high. <laughs> or the, the party, or I have anxiety about going to the party, so I'll get high and then I won't care. Yeah, stuff like that. So, I, yeah, I think I think that that's true. I think that's true. It is. It's sad to realize that about yourself. Like, it's sad that I couldn't just, yeah, go to high school without... Um, you know, smoking weed first. Um, but I mean, say la vie. I yeah. graduated and um, did fine. So look at, look at you now. Yeah, you're publishing books. I mean, what can you say? I guess. Who needs, yeah. Who needs high yeah. school? Yeah. Who needs high school and who needs pot? <laughs> yeah. Um, so how does it? How did it ultimately resolve itself? Like, I mean, you know, you left high school, you went out into college years, um, and like, you know, the fact that mm-hmm. your parents separated when you're 15—that's a tough age. You know, I'm sure that had a lot to do with it as well. You know. Uh, I guess so. Yeah. It's like, I, I never wanted to really put those things together. I never, I was like, Oh, you know, it's fine. You know, like I knew they, like, I don't know. There was this thing that it was denial, but I was like, I didn't think that had anything to do with it. But yeah, hearing you say that. Yeah. I think 15, it is. It's an awkward age for that kind of thing. It's an awkward age anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's just an awkward age. Yeah. Anything, God, that, yeah. anything that happens when you're 15 is pretty much awkward. It seems like. Yeah. Yeah, you look awkward. Yeah, act awkward. Yeah, I was. A um, so how did how did what how did what play out? 
Uh, just, just, I mean, like the, the drug use, like when did it taper? Like when did it all, like you go off to college and you know, did it intensify or did it taper? Yeah. I have friends who, you know, they did drugs in high school and they had their experimental phase then. And then when they got to college, they were relatively tame, you know, whereas like the rest right. of us, you know, I was, I was somewhat experimental in high school, but then I got to college and it was like, you know, I had kind of like an intense year and then I sort of like, mm-hmm. I, so I was sort of like, what am I doing? You know, like I, I'm, uh, yeah. you know, eating cereal and yeah. three meals a day. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Um, no, yeah. Well, I didn't go to, well, I did, I went to college only for one year. Well, I went to Europe for a little while. No drugs there, really. No, no drugs there. I went to Europe for like three months after high school, came back, went to community college for about a year. And I think when you live in a very small town, there's also, you're more apt to like be a pothead or, and stuff like that. So when, uh, when I was going to community college, yeah, I was still dabbling a little bit. And the funny thing is when I moved to New York city and I know there's some drugs in my book and stuff, cause I was still experimenting with stuff. But when I moved to New York, um, I, I kind of cleaned up in this way. Um, New York, the thing about New York is people drink like crazy. Um, and I, there were, there, I didn't know as many like potheads and stuff like that. So when I moved to the city, I kind of, I stopped smoking pot. Also, it's too busy there to be, you can't be high, like on the subway. <laughs> you get hit by you know? a bus, yeah. Oh my God. Right. Yeah. Panic attack. So, yeah, there was no way I was going to smoke weed in New York. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, okay. And so then you moved to New York and then what, what were you doing? Like you, you... Um, when I first moved to the city, I, I moved in with my brother and, uh, he worked at the Strand bookstore and I got a job, um, at a cafe. So I was just, uh, waitressing. And then one day it, came, it was like this Israeli guy who I actually think was like, a a drug dealer, this, um, Israeli guy. And then one day I came to work and there was just like a note on the door and he was like, you know, we have closed after eight years. Thanks for all the support. Like he never told me. So that was, so he just totally closed down. It was just like such a New York thing to happen. And I just kind of went, I had a couple different jobs until I landed, um, a job where I stayed for about three years, uh, for a jewelry designer in the West village. Um, and all which was the, really cool. And all this time were you, were you focused? Like you were like, I'm writing, like this job is just here to kind of serve, you know, to subsidize my writing life. Or yeah. What? Well, the job was great because, um, my boss, she, um, she saw that I loved writing and she would kind of give me these, um, these motivation things. Cause I was really good at selling jewelry and she'd be like, okay, if you sell this amount of jewelry, you know, this week I will, I didn't have a computer. She was like, I will get you a computer. Uh, if you sell this amount of jewelry, I will pay for your next writing class. So she, she would do these things for me to kind of keep me happy at the job. So that was great. Wow. What a good boss. It was boss. really great. I know. It's not amazing. So mm. I think she might've paid for two of those classes and she got me like my first laptop. <laughs> so yeah, it was wonderful. And what, and so and you yeah. said you were good at selling jewelry. So you're a good saleswoman. I was, yeah, not so much of the guitars. You got to know what you're talking. Jewelry is easy. You can be like, oh my god, that looks so good. That's all you have to say. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Although somebody, that does that works with some guitars, but <laughs> I was going to say with some when some kids trying to play like a C chord, you know, and like can't can't muster it, or I'm I'm in there trying to like sing. You're like, oh my god, 
That sounds awesome. Oh, you don't even know <laughs> the people that come in here. My dad, my dad says the uh, the unemployed and the insane are who we get all day, like these musicians. But yeah, I guess I could do that. Be like, oh wow, you sound amazing. <laughs> no, musicians come in and they want to bullshit. Like they want to just talk at the counter with us. It's right. like we're bartenders. Like they just want to come in and they're like, hey, so I have this guitar. What? I don't know. It's like so. There's like a grueling. yeah. It's like music talk. Like yeah, what kind of guitar? And they, it's like you know what it reminds me of. I mean, I think there's a lot of different permutations of this, but it reminds me of mm-hmm. like mountain dudes. Like when I went to Colorado and like I'm I'm from Indiana, so I didn't know any of it, you mm-hmm. know. But like guys talking mm-hmm. about skiing and like rock climbing and making totally. yeah. and then like musicians love to do that too they love to be like dude what kind of yeah. you know fender do you have and i'm just like ugh, like yeah i can't do oh they're bragger it's totally it's totally like my guitar is bigger than yours like oh my god it's so it's just it's funny like sometimes i really wish we had a video camera in here because we just get the funniest thing it's like being yeah on like a reality tv show especially since we live here it's just totally it's totally weird um Oh, yeah, no, that happened to me when I went to Seattle. Yeah, same thing, because um, I lived there for about a year, and I, like, had all these roommates, and, yeah, they were all, like, these rock climbers and stuff like that, and when you don't know that kind of thing, there's just no way to converse with that, those kind of people that are really into that. It's yeah. hard. Well, I tried. You know, hard. I, was, I was trying to integrate myself, because yeah. I was, like, you know, 18, and I'd moved all the way across the country, and... I did the best I could. Right. It was just, you know, I was too far behind to catch up, it seemed like. <laughs> yeah. So, you yeah. Said, so wait, so you were in New York, you're selling jewelry, then you, then you just throw Seattle <laughs> in there. So then you moved to Seattle after that? Or yeah, that's out? right. Okay. So what led to that? After that. Yeah, nothing. I, I, my aunt was out there and I, New York, I, I wanted to write and, um, in New York, I couldn't write as much as I wanted just because, you know, you work so much and then you go out. And I knew I wanted to be a serious writer and I knew to be a serious writer. I was, there's too much temptation there. And now it's funny. I'm like, oh, I'll live home. But at that point, I was uh, uh, 22 and I, I wasn't about to move home. So I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move to Seattle and just like be by myself and just see what it's like. But I thought that all cities were like going to be super fun. Like I thought I would get to Seattle and it would be like how it was when I first got to New York, you know, like just really crazy and like all this stuff. And I got there and I was like, oh, my God, you know, so it was kind of a hard year uh, What's for it me like? I've never, I've never been to Seattle. That's like one of the cities that's on my list, but I've never been there. What uh, What's it like? Yeah. It's quiet. Um, it's quiet. And the weird thing is you meet people and they're like, they're from there and they say all the time, like, so what do you think of Seattle? Like, it's pretty passive, right? Like, we call it the freeze. Like, no one's friendly to you, right? And like, so they have this like stigma and you're like, oh, now, well, now that you say that, you know, they would all tell me how passive it was. So then I started to feel that way as well. Um, so there's that. And um, it was beautiful in the summer. I had a great summer there. Uh, but it's, it wasn't for me. I didn't make that many friends at all. That's really the whole, and, that's really the whole thing about a place, like whether it's a job or like a place of employment yeah. or a place where you're living. It comes down to the people. Right. Yeah. It's like, that's it. That's it. If you're with good people, you could, I think you could be most places, but there's also a part of me that when you say quiet, like I, I've lived in LA for 10, 12 years and 
I honestly, wow, yeah. I, I have, a, and, and I'm from, I'm a, you know, from small towns. I mean, Christ, I grew up in Indian, right. in Milwaukee and Indianapolis. And I was in this, it wasn't like I was in the city, right. I was in the suburbs, but, um, yeah. you know, even I go back to Boulder or Denver now and it just seems like such a small place by comparison. And I've gotten so accustomed to the pace of things, um, and to the mm-hmm. activity level that like, I wonder if I moved to a smaller place, if I would just go crazy with boredom or something like i like being in a place that's like a little bit insane somehow i don't know why you know do you find yeah and i think when you know that you have to listen to that and you have to like stick with that you know i mean did you have any transition troubles when you you know now that you're living um upstate like do you think of manhattan and think to yourself i got to get back there or did you just kind of have your time and now you're you're glad to be out of the chaos yeah, I'm I'm glad to be out of there right now. I go down, you know, to do readings and stuff, and I'm, like, totally exhausted. I'm, like, 90 years old. It's so weird. I'm like, how did I do this? I mean, I would love to live there, I guess, if I had um, just, like, a large amount of money. But um, <laughs> right. otherwise, like, just unending money coming in. But it's it's hard there, and it's hard not to be tempted. I mean, there's just so many, oh, that coffee place looks cool. Look at that bar. Look at that. Look at that thing on the street. Look at that. Like, you can easily, it's just really hard for me with my finances there. Um, but the good thing about Hudson, where I live, is it, it is a city. Like, it's, um, I can walk everywhere without a car, and it's not that, it's not that secluded. Um, there's, like, a lot of life here. But where I'm from originally is um, Spencertown, which is about 45 minutes from here, and my mom lives there, and that's that's out in the woods. But it's nice. You know, I like I like to be able to do everything. I like to be able to go to the city, to go to the woods, a little of everything. Yeah, that's not you so know? bad. That's not so bad. Yeah. Yeah, I've never been to L.A. You never have? It's, so, it gets a bad rap. I don't know. I have know. not. I'm, I've decided that I it love does, it. does, yeah. I've decided that I love it. And I'm, good I, for you. I think it's a good place, and I don't give a shit what anybody says. <laughs> And and really and truly, it's, it's not that. I mean, uh, if I could live here, any you know, it's not that much different. It's just got better weather and more traffic. That's it. Yeah. Okay. And, L.A. Pride. I like that. Yeah. No. It sounds. It sounds kind of lovely, especially the weather. There, yeah. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful place. I mean, there's a reason why there's a lot of people here, um, and it's got its problems. I mean, mm-hmm. don't, don't get me wrong. And it's it's just a zoo. But uh, you know, the entire city is built on the creative arts and. That makes it unique, I think, and um, like that's the primary show in town. And there's just a lot of creative people doing a lot of interesting stuff here. And there's just a lot of people with like big, extremely crazy dreams, um, mm-hmm. you know, trying to actualize them. And like I think like the vast majority are failing to do that. But I find some romance in the fact that they're trying. Do you know what I'm saying? That is that's really gorgeous. Yeah, I like how you just put that. Yeah. That's really cool. So I never thought of it like that. Yeah. I it's mean, also kind of sad. It's like sad, but brave and like, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. You just walk around sometimes and you're just like, my God, it's, it is sad, but that there's, so there's a beauty in the sadness, mm-hmm. you know, like just the, mm-hmm. just like the, everything. Yeah. Know, the effort or something about it, you know, but it's also, you know, the calculus changes a little bit once you have a kid and, you know, I, I think we'll yeah. be probably, we'll probably live here for the rest of our lives and be negotiating about whether or not it was the right thing to do, like for most of it. <laughs> right. But I think right. like, it's probably just, it just, it's probably just makes being a parent harder to raise your kid in a place like LA or New York or some big crazy right. city. Whereas like if you're in a small town where there's like a really tight knit community and it's easier to just kind of let your kids run around, like it probably right. the town probably does some of the work for you. So I think we just, you know, we can do it and she'll be fine. We'll just have to work a little bit harder at it, you know? 
What's your daughter's name? Uh, her name is Evan. So we gave her a, uh, Evan? a boy's name. Yeah. But we, we gave her a uh, V-A-N. Yeah. And so her, uh, mm-hmm. but her middle name is Olivia, is- just in case she can't like, you know, she hates it. Oh, cool. She can, t- she can change it up. Yeah, no, she won't. I think she'll like it. Evan, Olivia. That's cool. I hope so. So tell me about, uh, the writing of this book, uh, legs get mm-hmm. led astray. And am I correct in saying that you wrote part of this book or some of this book at Cheryl Strade's house? Or am I completely misreading that? Or did I, um, it's not that I, <laughs> it's not that I wrote, um, did I write any of it there? I don't think I wrote any of it there, but that's, I have, uh, cat sat, cat sat, house sat for her, um, twice during the process of this book. So that's where I was, um, like doing the order of this book and, um, doing all of my, um, edits of the book was in her, um, actually at this desk that she told me, I forget the writer's name that gave it to her. It'd be better if I could remember, but I think it was Judith or Judy something, um, who gave her a desk and she doesn't really use a desk cause she writes in this chair, but I, I used the desk. So yeah, that was, that was pretty amazing. Um, I'm going back there in, um, June actually to do some more cat sitting. Oh really? So you just you just fly. Well, she's in Portland. You go to Portland to work on the book, and then you just fly yeah. across the country to cat sit. <laughs> I do. Yeah. Thank you for putting it like that. Isn't that hilarious? Like it, she, I came out the first time to meet my publisher and editor of Future Tense, Kevin Samsel, and um, I made a lot of friends out there. I like everything Seattle was not Portland is. And, um, I just had the time of my life and Cheryl knew, and I met Cheryl for the first time, uh, there and it was her birthday. And afterwards she told me, Oh, I know you love it here. And I just want to give you some dates that I'm going away. You know, if you would like to catch it. So, um, I, I kind of just, I, I jumped on that opportunity and I thought I would just go one of the times, but I ended up, I just keep going back because I just keep making more and more friends and the literary scene is totally unbelievable. And so it's a great way for me to have somewhere um, free to stay and also do a bunch of readings um, in Portland. So it's been great. Wow. And so how did it's you, really get, great. how did you get hooked up with uh, Kevin and Future Tense? How did that all transpire? Mm-hmm. Um, when I was living in Seattle, uh, I guess it was 2010, I, my friend Sean said to me that like Future Tense was pretty interesting and that they were putting out Jamie Iredell's, um next book, The Book of Freaks. And so I looked into it and I was like, that's cool. So I, I liked the website. I, I just thought, and it, it was one of the only small press sites where I saw that he would look at nonfiction. Like a lot of the places were like poetry, flash fiction, you know, and I just felt like, oh God, no one is going to want nonfiction from someone, a girl in their early twenties, you know, it's just, but he did. So I thought that was cool. So I, I wrote to him and I think I sent him a piece I was like, you know, I was pretty eager and he and he was like, oh, this is cool. You know, I already have my next couple books lined up, but keep in touch. And I said, oh, okay, like he hates me, you know. And then um, he told me to check out this bookstore, which has since closed, called Pilot Books in Seattle. And he said that they carried some a lot of indie stuff. So I went there and I bought like Chelsea Martin's book. Um, everything was fine until whatever and some future tense stuff and so then some time went on. I left Seattle. I moved back to Brooklyn. I think I wrote to him again and I said, cause I was kind of getting, you know, my stuff was getting more and more. I was starting to make a manuscript out of it. And, um, his website still said submissions are closed. So I wrote to him and I said, you know, are, are they ever going to be open again? And here's another new essay of mine. And 
he wrote back and said he thought it was cool again, but <laughs> that was it. And then, then I left Brooklyn because again, I was like, okay, I need, I really need to write. And that's when I moved in with my dad. And that was, um, last January. So January 2011. And, um, a couple months after that, Kevin emailed me and he just said, like, send me stuff now. And he said, Chloe, send me your nonfiction manuscript. And I did. And then he wrote again and he said, give me your phone number. And then he called me about a week or two later and said he wanted to do a book. And so you, it was pretty amazing. What did you say? How, what was your reaction? Oh, I was so happy. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I screamed or cried or something. I was, I was so happy because I was sure he was going to say, I like it, but, or like, you know, try again in a year or like something like that. Something where I was going to be like so close. So I was, I was stunned, you know, Yeah. very excited. That's a great, yeah. moment. that's a great moment. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear. You oh my God. Such a great moment. Yeah. Well, especially when you've been working, I mean, everybody who gets there has been working at it for a long time or nine, out, you know, nine, right. nine point nine out of 10 people who, who get to that moment have right. had to go through an ordeal to get there. But, um, right. you know, one of the things you talked about, uh, that I think merits a little bit more discussion is nonfiction and like the fact that you um, sort of defiantly work in that vein uh, and, you know, in the personal essay. And I feel like, you know, I don't know, because I, you know, I, the nervous breakdown, we, we've featured primarily that, you know, ever since its inception. Yep. And so I feel like the web is obviously like a kind of a, a, a natural uh, depository of lots and lots of nonfiction and personal essay stuff. But in terms of like book, you know, uh, you know, book publication, do you feel like there, there's a few, like a bright future for the kind of uh, work that you do? Cause like a lot of these essays are, are really right. short, you know, some of them are obviously longer than others, but you know, I, I like a quick essay, you know, like a quick kind of mm -hmm. powerful punch. And then I like like a really long ruminative essay that mm. uh, takes you mm -hmm. in a, you know, a million different uh, directions. But um, like, what do you, like, do you have a sense of it? Like, can you, can you see a way forward where you're writing the way that you write and you're publishing, uh, and making a living from it? Or do you think it's something that you're always going to have to subsidize with other work? Like, do you, do you, uh, like fantasize about it at like that level of right. glory, you know, or are you more of a realist? Right. I, you know, it's something I'm, I'm struggling with. It's funny that like six months ago, I was like, okay, decision made. I am going to write for a living. I'm going to freelance write, you know, and I'm just going to keep writing and just make my money writing. I don't care how hard it is. It's just what I'm going to do. And now I'm like, hell no. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to do that because it's, um, it's too stressful. I, I am friends with two people that do that. Um, they live here in my town and just seeing the struggles that they have with it. I'm just seeing it up close and personal. I'm like not saying I thought it, I, maybe I did. Maybe I thought it was going to be like really a glamorous thing, but I don't think my writing is strong as strong when I'm writing a for paid, if it's like a paid article or, you know, doing a profile on somebody or this or that. So I've kind of decided to not do that. And I am going to have to find a way to um, support myself and just keep my creative writing. I, I'll, you know, I would love to get paid for stuff and I'll get paid for stuff like recreationally as another friend of mine put it, but I'm, I don't want to make it my, my means of income. Um, 
if it did, if I could write a book of personal essays and get a big cash advance, oh yeah, of, of course I fantasize about that. Yeah, you know, everybody. But does. I'm also yeah, but I'm not um, I'm not I'm not counting on it. I'm not counting on it. But for me, I because I I really 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 want to keep writing enjoyable for me. And um, right now I kind of hit a wall because this book is out, and I, I find it very hard to um, work on like new stuff while I'm still while I'm like um, executing like Get Let Astray. It's like this weird, you know, conflicting thing. It's like the past and the future, and it's just hard for me right now. I, I'm I'm just I'm not writing much, and um, which is fine. Like I don't I don't really want to make it um, something that I hate. I, I I don't I want to do that to myself. Like I just want to keep loving writing. Like writing this book was really a joyful experience for me, and that's how I want to keep writing. It is hard to yeah get paid for personal essays, um, but I think that's fine. I just said, but I do have to find a way to get income um, while I am writing the personal essays. That gives me enough time to write them. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And what about like when yeah. you work, when you're working in a nonfiction vein, what about the pressure to come up with material? Like I know you can write about topics mm-hmm. and subjects that are important to you, but do you ever feel like uh the pressure to uh live uh life at a certain um level of intensity so that you have material? Like I often find myself reading a memoir or a personal essay about some sort of like extremely intense experience that a person's had and feeling like a pang of jealousy because I haven't had that. And I'm like, well, God, what a great thing to write yeah. about. You know, so you, do you ever like want to totally. go, go out and, you know, get your hands dirty so that you have something to write about, even if it means. Oh God, uh, I do. I do. That's, that's a habit though. I'm trying to break because I think that I even like, I know I'm young and stuff, but like even in my, my, in my early twenties, I think I really, I, I always was writing. And even if it was just writing in my journal, I'd be like, if I were doing, if I were kind of pushing myself to the edge, you know, doing something that maybe not everyone would do, I'd be like, this is, this is funny. Like, this is going to be a funny journal entry. This is a hilarious sentence. Like I, I, I would think about these sentences and the thing about the sentences for me was I never wanted them to not be true. So if I thought something would make a funny sentence, I would do the thing. Um, the thing for me is though, I kind of feel now like I, yeah, I don't have that much material because since I have been working on this book for the past year and even my dad said it, he was like, you have no life. You've had no life in the past year. I've like been sitting at this desk, um, but that's what you have to do. Book. That's so, what you have to do. You can't. Have, I know. Like I'm working on a book right now, and it like it, it is all consuming. And it's like I think about it even when I'm not doing it, and it's like there's just totally. I have to be all in, and I find it like extremely grueling, and it is enjoyable, but yeah. it's such a strange kind of enjoyment. I don't even know how to like. I, I still haven't decided what I think about this writing thing. <laughs> I know, but I can't. And do not you do feel? Because this is how. Yeah. Well, for the past year, when I went out, Brad, like if I was out with with someone drinking a beer, oh my God. I mean, I was tapping my foot. I was looking at the clock. I wanted to always run home to the computer. This book, oh yeah, it totally took up my being. And I was like distracted if I was out and I just wouldn't go out. And so now I have this weird sense. I wake up in the morning and I, it's, it's like losing, it's like having a baby and like giving up for adoption or something. I'm like, I don't know what to do with myself anymore. Like it, yeah. It gave me such a sense of purpose, and now, and I, I actually want to explore this subject. And I was um, saying to someone recently, I want to write an essay about how 
depressing it is when your book does come out. And I know everyone talks about that. And I, I did read something by a woman who said, I feel, I, I feel so bad for anyone who has their book come out. Like it is the worst thing. And this was months ago. And I was like, what is she talking about? Right. And now I'm just like, Oh my God, who am I? You know? And, um, I got totally depressed after, I'm just going to say it, after like Skate Let Us Stray came out, it came out on my birthday, my 26th birthday. And the, the day after that, it was okay. And maybe even the day after, and then like I was in bed for like three days, <laughs> which I don't normally do. I was just like, I was heartbroken. Yeah. It's like empty, strange, em- right? Emptiness syndrome. And, and yeah, and it's like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've, had so I've, had, I've had the exact same conversation on this show with people before. I want to say I was talking to Lauren, uh-huh. Lauren Groff about this and it's like, at the same uh, time, you feel sort of bad for even talking about that because there are so many people out there who are struggling to get published yes. who are like, fuck you. That's a great yes. problem to have, you know, but uh, I know. It doesn't, I know. It doesn't change the fact that it's true. There is a like there is a kind of a letdown. And I think the, on, the only solution is to just try to as quickly as possible get back to working in a way that feels uh, enjoyable or as close to enjoyable yeah. as you can get to, you know. Right. Like on different on different projects. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Now there's more time to do other things. Um, I don't know. Yeah. So I'm pretty confused. Like part of me is like, I just don't, it's funny. I feel really um, like physical. Like I want to just take up some kind of like exercise. Like I go to yoga like four times a week. Like now I'm starting to think I want to do yoga training or like be a teacher because we sit all the time doing writing, you know, Um, if you're a writer. So now it's like, I'm on the, I'm like this extremist. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. Like now I just want to be totally disciplined, but in a different way, um, in a physical way. So yeah, I I don't know. I used to do yoga like six, I used to do yoga like six days a week in my twenties. I was like super, Really? it was part of my writing regimen, you know, cause I would like ring myself out after I would work all day. Um, yep. my, yeah, exactly. Me too. My back, uh, my back after a while though, I have like a tricky low back and it was like, it was too much on my body, you know? So I still do it. At, I still do oh, it when, no. I, when I can, but now I'm like a, I'm a hiker and, uh, I have to move. Are you? Yeah. I oh yeah. Move. I know that I listen and I listened to your, your podcast about the Appalachian trail. Yeah. That was really interesting. So there yeah. you go. Me wandering, um, wandering aimlessly. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, that was that was great. Did you get into hiking? Like, were you always kind of into hiking, and then you did the trail? Well, it was, and then it was Boulder, it was, or was it like it was the whole Boulder thing? Uh-huh. You know, the mountains were just sort of sitting there, oh, right. and then I just started walking up into them. <laughs> and oh, right, right. That, there's nothing else to do. Yeah, yeah, but I found that I liked it, and I mean, it's going to sound. I, I really, you know, I, it's going to sound more hardcore than I actually was. But I, like, what I, I think what I learned that I really liked hiking was that. Uh, you know, it's like a hangover recovery. Like you'd go out in the, on the weekends mm. in college and you'd drink all this beer or whatever. And then you'd wake up the next morning. And you'd be like, Oh, I feel terrible. And then I would just like, uh, take my dog up into the mountains and go run for an hour and I'd come back down and I'd feel great. And I was like, okay, so what? Oh, that's such a great idea. Yeah. And so I just started you sweat doing... out all the toxins. You get fresh air. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's so beautiful too. That was, I mean, it wasn't really that hard of a sell. So, and then I just got into it, and I guess for whatever reason I'm I'm prone to rituals or whatever. But I just I I literally have hiked pr- or done some like kind of long form walk probably ninety five percent of the days of my life since I was like nineteen years old. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. That's a great way to. I wish I did that to be like mentally healthy. I don't walk much anymore i'm like totally you walk, you walk downstairs home or at work 
I walk downstairs. Here's where I walk. I, totally. I walk downstairs to work, and I walk across the street for yoga. And I don't even know how good this is for me because it's like if you sit all day, but then you do these really intense yoga classes, it's like you're doing like two really two things that are just not the norm. Well, now, I yeah, think I should incorporate some more walking. I read all this stuff all the time. It's like on the web. There's all these like it's like a meme. There's all these stories about how like if you sit too much during the day, you're, yeah. you're going to die. And it's like, I've been doing that since I was <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it's like, it doesn't even matter if you then go like exercise. It's like, you just cannot, the body is not meant to sit for like more than like an hour at a time. And I'm, I'm just like, Oh God, I'm, I'm screwed. You know? Oh God. Crap. Yeah. So I'm gonna have to and I up. have this bad thing where I like sit on my leg. I like sit on my legs and stuff and they fall asleep. I'm, th- I'm like totally screwed. Yeah, well. But my, my yoga chops are getting really good. I, I'm really excited about yoga right now. So um, we have um, in Massachusetts, there's, um, I don't know if you've heard of Kripalu, but it's like this um, this yoga place where a lot of people go do their teacher training. And um, so I'm thinking, about, I'm thinking about doing that next. I'm not really going to worry about, you know, what I'm going to write next. I just have to go get outside, I think. Well, let me just, know? let's figure it out right now. Let's just get this all squared away. <laughs> I think what, what you're going to do... Can you give me a life plan? Yeah, we're going to get your life plan. Tell me. You're going you're gonna, to uh, <laughs> sell a few more guitars. You're going to get your. You're gonna get excited okay. about your next project. Um, you're going to get okay. started working on it. Then you're going to go to... What's it called? Kapalu? Kripalu, yep. Is it actually Krapalu? Is that actually the spelling? Kripalu, like K-R-I, oh, K-R-I-P-A-L-U. Okay, uh-huh. good, good, good. Okay, so you're going to go to Kripalu. You're going to get your yoga teacher certification, and then you're going to move to Portland. And you're going be a to yoga you're going to be, teach some yoga. You're going to maybe uh, you know sell a little bit of coffee here and there. But you're going to work on your next book, and then uh, <laughs> it's going to be this big memoir, and it's going to be a, a big seller, and that'll be the that'll be the launching pad. How does that sound? Wow, that was great. That was like looking into the future. So you think I'm going to move to Portland, huh? I think you That's should. Interesting. Everyone's saying that. Why do you say that? I think so too. The, God, this writing scene there—it's so supportive. You gotta, you gotta go. I want to go. You gotta I need, go. I need to. I want to go up there and feel nurtured and welcomed. You know, like Los Angeles can be. Yeah. Little, Los Angeles is a really creative town, but it's almost like uh, you know everybody's doing stuff. So it's like it seems like in Portland mm-hmm. there's like a nice little womb of you know goodness or something and people yeah people have uh, yeah that's exactly what it is so you should go to the womb of goodness yeah. that's the name of your book right all there. right <laughs> okay um, so, oh my god that's awesome I, i'm scared i'm gonna want to like write a book about yoga you know and i know that like that's so boring to people or something but i don't know you'll write we'll see what happens I, I i i'm not gonna write a memoir i don't have enough um uh, maybe maybe in a couple of years but I think I'm going to stick to books of essays. All right. I don't know what I'm going to do. Don't quote me. No, sh- like I don't. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> well, it's on the record now. Uh, you're you're officially on the record. Uh, you don't know what's going to happen, but it'll probably be a book of essays written in the womb of goodness. Uh, Chloe, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to talk with me. Congratulations! Congratulations on this book, and all best of luck to you as you uh, figure out what's next. Thank you so much for having me, and um, that, that was really great. I had a great time, and now I have some um, ideas of what to do with my life. So <laughs> well, not only is this a podcast, it's actually, it's like, you know, get some life coaching with Brad. Well, so, glad, thank you I'm glad so I'm much. I'm glad I could be of assistance. All right, everybody, there you go. That is the program. That's Chloe Caldwell. What a delight. Go get her book. It's called Legs Get Led Astray. It is available from Future Tense Books. Check them out. 
at futuretensebooks.com. You can find Chloe online at chloecaldwell.com. She's also on the Twitter. Her handle is Chloe underscore Caldwell, and you can find her on the Facebook too. This show, it has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It's on Twitter at otherpeoplepod. I'm on the Twitter at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook page, and if you want to email me and tell me something, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Go check out killrockstars.com. And thanks once again to our sponsor, the UCLA Extension Writers Program. If you are working on a novel or a collection of short stories or an epic poem or a screenplay of some sort and you want some instruction or some structure, uh, if you want some discipline, you want some uh, help in the process, go sign up for a class. You can attend classes right here in Los Angeles, California in person or you can do it remotely via the internet. Either way is just fine. And let's face it, there's no time like right now to get going. For more information, call 310-825-9415. That's 310-825-9415. Or feel free to visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers and check them out on Facebook too and also on the Twitter. Uh, Okay, closing thoughts, uh, final wrap-up, the riding crop story, that whole thing the mediation of one's own experiences, the uh, conscious seeking out of grandiose experience or emotionally heavy or even cataclysmic stuff for the purposes of literary market capitalization. Uh, It's a lot to process. And I'm not even really sure if I articulated it very well uh, on the front end or if I'm even capable of it at this point. Uh, What I'm saying is that I think it happens. And I'm not saying that it's bad necessarily, nor am I saying that it's good. I'm just saying that it's interesting. And, uh, you know... There even seems to be an actual genre devoted to really explicit attempts in this vein, and I believe it's called the stunt memoir. I think that's what they call it, which begs the question, uh, is there such thing as a stunt novel or a stunt poem or a stunt biography? And if not, why not? And if so, why so? Uh, Okay, so... I think my head is empty now. That is all she wrote. Please remember that fingernail growth is fastest in November and slowest in July. And please remember that nobody knows what causes puberty to begin. Thank you for listening. It's a pleasure to have you here, to be here with you in this intimate sonic capacity, to be wherever you are, whatever you happen to be doing, whether you are washing dishes or sitting in solitude or wandering aimlessly through Death Valley or engaging in reckless behavior for the purposes of literary self-aggrandizement at an as yet undetermined point in the future. And if that's the case, it's okay. I'm not judging. I'm just saying, don't hurt yourself. It isn't worth it. Uh, just sit there, you know, maybe try that. Something will happen. Something good, something weird. Eventually. (laughs) 